0: Well, good morning. Welcome to those of you who are here in the worship center, as well as those of you who are joining us in the venue in the north end of the building, as well as those of you who are worshiping with us online. Today's the first Sunday of Advent, and Advent is the season where we celebrate uh, the the first coming of Christ 2,000 years ago, and we anticipate the second coming of Christ at some undisclosed time in the future. And this Advent season, we're going to be studying four passages in the book of Isaiah in which Isaiah looks forward to the coming Messiah. And he's going to tell us that the Messiah will meet our deepest needs, our deepest needs. And all of us would say that we have felt needs, and they're valid felt needs. There's nothing trivial or insignificant about them. We have felt needs related to our health and our physical well-being, related to our financial well-being. We have felt needs relationally. And all of those are valid. But the sober reality is, is this possible to have all of our felt needs met and still have our deepest needs unmet? We have deep, deep needs that only God can meet directly. What Isaiah tells us is that the Messiah will meet those deepest needs. Specifically, we're going to see how the Messiah, Jesus, meets our need for hope. we we'll look at that today in Isaiah 9. Our need for deliverance, Isaiah 42. Our need for forgiveness, Isaiah 53. And then finally, our need for a sinless eternity, There will be a day, sooner or later, in every single one of our lives, where the only thing that matters is, where am I going to spend eternity? Will I spend eternity in a sinless new heaven and new earth with God himself? And so, whether you're a devoted follower of Christ or whether you're you're basically kind of cautiously tiptoeing in and considering the claims of Christ, we're going to challenge you to receive everything that God wants to give you through his Messiah. God wants to give you hope, he wants to give you deliverance, he wants to give you forgiveness, and he wants to give you a sinless eternity. Well, today we begin in Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. So I would invite you to stand as I read that passage where Isaiah 9 verses 1 through 7. Isaiah writes, But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea... On the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. This is God's word. You can be seated. At the time of Isaiah's prophecy, the people of Israel were largely living in prosperity, and they were basically performing their religious duties. They brought the sacrifices. They sang the songs. But it was all an external show. And Isaiah explains why that was the case in chapters 1 through 8. He says, basically, you're like rebellious children, you're like an unfaithful spouse. Instead of being a light to the nations, you've become like the nations. You worship their gods, you worship their idols. Instead of consulting the Lord, you consult mediums. Instead of being people of justice, leaders and people alike are full of injustice, especially when it comes to the least of these in the land, to widows and orphans. Isaiah says, You have every advantage and yet you're faithless, and you don't realize that you're faithless. And so this would be analogous to to good church people who do all the right things, all the Christian things we're supposed to do, and yet their hearts are far from God. These are people who sing the songs, they say the prayers, they listen to the sermons, they give their tithes and offerings, they go to Bible study, they do all these things, And yet it's just an external show. They eat at the table and drink at the table of the Lord, the Lord's table. And then they go out and eat and drink at every other table that the world sets before them. In other words, it's possible that some of us here, myself included, perhaps many of us here are just like the people in Isaiah's day. Like them, we have a type of prosperity that can tend to mask the true condition of our hearts. Therefore, the warnings that Isaiah gave to them are warnings that we should heed ourselves. At the end of Isaiah 8, Isaiah tells the nation of Israel that one day, even though they're now in prosperity, one day they would experience distress and darkness and anguish and gloom. And this is the condition of everyone in every age whose religion is just a show. Isaiah 8.22, Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. If our religion is just a show, one day our circumstances will mirror the condition of our hearts. In this life or in, in the life to come. But one day our circumstances will mirror the condition of our hearts. And that's that's bad news. It's terrible news. But throughout Isaiah, you have to hear the bad news before you can hear the good news. And so the good news is beginning in Isaiah 9, Isaiah looks further into the future and he sees hope. We see in Isaiah 9, 1 through 3, a promise of hope, and then verses 4 through 7, we see the explanation of hope. And so receive this hope today. If you're in anguish, if you're walking in darkness, receive this hope that Isaiah says comes through the Messiah. First of all, the promise of hope in verses 1 through 3. God didn't have to give us good news. He did not have to give us hope, but by his grace and his mercy, God promises a remedy to darkness. Darkness will be dispelled by light, a remedy to gloom. Gloom will, be tur- will turn into gladness. Again, look at verse one. There's a lot of geographical details here, but uh, there's, a, there's a point. There's a powerful point behind these, as we'll see. Isaiah says, verse one, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, He, God, treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, in the last days, in the latter times, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So here's a map. It's probably a little bit too too small for you to see. But if you look up at the top to the north of Israel, you'll see purple... And dark yellow regions; those are Zebulun and Naphtali. The blue is the Sea of Galilee. And that's what Isaiah is talking about. And those regions would have been the first that, that, when armies came down from the north, they would have been the first to experience anguish and gloom. Generation after generation, they were trampled underfoot. They were conquered by people after people. And so um, uh, there's. Uh, and so we'll, we'll come back to these geographical details in a minute. But whereas God treated these lands with contempt in earlier times because of their rebellion, in the latter times, later on, there will be no more gloom, no more anguish. And so uh, all of history can be divided between the earlier times and the latter days. And the New Testament says that these latter days, or these last days, begin with the ministry of Jesus. Beginning in verse 2, Isaiah describes what would happen in these latter days days. There will be anguish, but then later on, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Verse 3, he says, you shall multiply the nations. That's the covenant promise. He told Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore, as the stars in the sky. You shall increase their gladness, instead of gladness, instead of gloom, they're going to have gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So here's this great reversal. These people who are, who are experiencing gloom and despair, they will be glad in your presence. There would be a day when God would be present with them. In chapter 7, we had the, the prophecy of Emmanuel. This is the sign that was given to Ahaz. This virgin would be with child and she would give birth to a son. His name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And so one day God would be with them and he would make them glad. What type of gladness? Well, some of you are in agriculture, no doubt. It's like when the fields produce this abundant harvest. It's the gladness of the harvest. Or when when warriors divide up the, the spoils of war, there's been victory, there's abundance in the harvest and in victory. People living in darkness would see a great light. they would experience great joy in God's presence. Now turn with me to, to Matthew chapter four. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, the first book in the New Testament. Matthew tells us very specifically, When this prophecy was fulfilled, there's no need for guesswork here, no need for speculation. Matthew's going to tell us what Isaiah wrote in those two verses, this is when it was fulfilled. Isaiah 4.12, this is after Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, that's where he grew up, he came and settled in Capernaum. Now, where's that? Well, it's by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And if you know Isaiah, you're going, Zebulun and Naphtali, what what is happening here? And then Matthew tells us, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee, of the Gentiles, The people who were sitting in darkness, they saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. Matthew says that when Jesus left his hometown and he went and he settled in this region of Zebulun and Naphtali, he was the light of Isaiah 9. He was the light shining in darkness. He was the one who would turn their gloom and anger, anguish into gladness. But how would he do that? Was it just he had a radiant personality or, or did he have a glow? What was it? Well, he tells us in verse seven, 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the gospel. The gospel is an announcement of what God is doing. God, Jesus announced, God is going to establish a kingdom on this earth. You don't have to be a part of it, but if you want to be a part of God's kingdom, repent and, follow, and believe, in, believe the gospel and enter that kingdom yourself. And so Jesus told them, your gloom will turn to gladness if you repent and enter the kingdom of God. And so it's important to note that there, there, the hope that Jesus was giving these people in darkness and anguish, it was not circumstantial. He wasn't saying, "I'm going to turn and flip all your circumstances, and they'll be great." Jesus did not liberate them from the Romans; they would still be occupied uh, by the Romans. Oh, he would deliver them from something much more insidious, much more devastating, namely the darkness in their own heart. He would deliver them from indwelling sin. In John eight twelve, Jesus announced something similar. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. I am the light in Isaiah 9, shining into the darkness. And then he said, he who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And so if you are sick and tired of walking in darkness, if you are experiencing anguish and gloom and despair because of your sin, repent turn from it, enter the kingdom of God, and experience life, experience abundance of life. Follow Jesus. He is the light of the world. Now, you may be thinking, okay, you may be thinking, maybe Pastor Steve is right. Maybe I should quit behaving just a little bit. And maybe I should be just a little bit more obedient. Maybe I should do God a big favor and quit, be, quit misbehaving a lot and obeying a lot. And so, if you're thinking this, I, w- I want to tell you that you are 100% absolutely misunderstanding what Jesus was saying, what Isaiah was saying. Walking in darkness is like drinking poison. It makes you sick and lethargic. Look at Isaiah 1. It gives this medical analogy. And so, you don't need to start drinking a little less poison you need to become a type of person that doesn't like poison at all you need to you need to be a person who has a new heart you need new appetites and you don't need to try harder you need the power of God to be able to walk in the light permanently on an ongoing basis. And so that's what Jesus is offering. He says, believe, repent, believe the gospel, begin following him. You will walk in the light by the power of the Holy Spirit and you will experience abundance of life. That's the hope that Jesus is offering us. That's the hope that Isaiah talked about. And I know you know this, but you need a hope that goes beyond a vaccine and beyond COVID. You need a hope that goes beyond this election cycle, right? You need a hope that goes beyond the grave. That's the hope that Jesus is offering you, okay? And so don't think small, think big. Don't think partial, think absolute. This this is what God is offering. Now, how's he gonna, how's he gonna bring this about? Let's return to Isaiah nine. We've seen the promise of hope. Let's look at the, the explanation of hope in verses 4 through 7. In these verses, we find how God delivers on this hope. And you'll notice that verse 4, verse 5, and verse 6, they all begin with the word for. He's saying for. This, this is why. This is This is the explanation of how God's delivering on the hope that, that he just described. He said for, verse 4, for you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders. In other words, you're no longer going to be oppressed. You're no, no longer going to be in bondage. The rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. Read about that in, in uh, Judges 6 and 7 sometime. The battle of Gideon was the, uh, the judge then. But God said, Gideon, here's the battle plan. I want you to whittle down these, this army of thousands to 300 people. And you're going to attack by blowing trumpets and smashing pots. Okay? So, with that battle plan, there's going to be no confusion about whose power was involved here, no confusion about who is delivering them. That's Isaiah's point. People walking in darkness, experiencing great light, it's going to be exclusively, completely God accomplishing this on your behalf. He's the one that's going to take this yoke off your shoulders. Verse 5. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood, it will be for burning, fuel for the fire. Some of you are in the military probably. Imagine your commander saying, okay, bonfire. Bring your boots, bring your backpacks, bring your ammo, bring your weapons. Throw them in the bonfire. What would that mean? You're not going to war again. Battle is obsolete. That's what is promised by this, this, this hope. That Isaiah is talking about. True peace, true shalom will be established in a very permanent, comprehensive way. And then we come to verse 6, and you have to wonder, how much of this did Isaiah understand? Did, Did he have any idea what he was actually prophesying? And so this is the ultimate reason why people walking in darkness would see a great light. He says, for a child, a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. He's saying our hope is going to, be, is going to come through a child. And so the fact that a child will be born indicates that this, this, this person is coming into the world just like everybody else. He's going to be born of a woman. And the fact that a son is given means it's going to be a gift from God. And the fact that the fact that the child is born to us, and the son is given to us, means that we will reap the benefit of this child. And the New Testament very explicitly says Jesus is this Messiah. He is this child that was given. Uh, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave. What did he give? He gave a son. This is the son who was given so that all who believe in him will not perish but will have eternal life. And so uh, that's the child. That's the son. He adds again in verse 6, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And so whereas the the yoke and the, the staff will be taken off of our shoulders, This child will shoulder the entire government. Ultimately, Isaiah is saying that this child, this son, would rule the entire world. But the question is left open, so or the question comes to mind: what type of ruler will he be? Will he be like all the other rulers in Israel? Will he, will he eventually do some good things and some bad things? Will he eventually turn into a tyrant? What will he be like? Well, we find out that Isaiah uses terms in these, this fourfold description, terms that are, are usually reserved exclusively for God. And he gives this fourfold uh, description, these four names or qualities. First, he is wonderful counselor. Literally, he's a wonder of a council, counselor. Unlike other rulers of Israel, or America for that matter, this ruler would have supernatural wisdom. He wouldn't need counsel from others. He would give counsel to everyone. Second, he is mighty God. And that's the same term that's used of God himself in the very next chapter in Isaiah 10, 21. Isaiah is saying that this son, this child will have the type of might that only God has. And so there are hints like this throughout the Old Testament that God himself would one day take on flesh and blood and dwell among us. Uh, The the early church described the identity of Jesus. One of the ways it described him, he's fully God and fully man. It's hinted at here and elsewhere. Third, he's eternal father. This king would have the qualities of a father that God has, qualities like concern and compassion for his children, uh, concern for the helpless in the world. And he would have those qualities eternally. Wouldn't be a flash in the pan. He is eternally this father. And fourth, he's the prince of peace. And Isaiah, the term prince is used of, of someone who's kind of an administrator for the will of the king. And in this case, this prince of peace will spread peace. He'll spread shalom in a very comprehensive way. You may remember at the birth of Jesus, we actually sang it earlier, Luke 2.14, the angels cried out, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Isaiah 9.7, this is how, how comprehensive and permanent this king would reign. It says, there will be no end to the increase of his government or his peace the government of this child, of this son, it would expand and increase until he ruled the whole world. And wherever he rules, peace will be there as well. Continuing in verse 7, on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And it's not going to be a timid action that God takes the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. And so notice that this Davidic king will establish an eternal kingdom with justice and righteousness. And we'll talk about those two terms more in in coming weeks. But I wanna say a few terms about justice uh, because, because we need to understand what the Bible means when it uses that term. When we use the term justice, we tend to think about fairness, right? And I dare say that everyone hearing my voice would say, yeah, I'm all for justice. I want a type of society where everybody plays by the same rules. I don't want, I don't want injustice where the strong have one set of rules, one set of pa- regulations, and the weak, they have a whole different set. No, we want justice. We don't want people to get away with violence and murder if they, they happen to not get caught or they happen to be in, in power. We don't want a set of lenient laws for people with one color of skin and very harsh laws for everybody else. No, we want everybody to be rewarded and punished fairly, right? I mean, that's what we want. That's the way we're supposed to treat each other without partiality. That's the way we want our governments to run. And so we we advocate for that and we work for that and we pray for that type of justice. We need to understand that when the Bible says that God is setting up a kingdom based on justice and righteousness, what it's saying there is that God himself does not play favorites. Okay, God doesn't play favorites. And so what it means, and this is a sobering reality, it means that everybody will be rewarded and punished fairly. Okay, It's true whether you're rich or poor, it doesn't matter your ethnicity, it doesn't matter what culture you live in around the world, everyone will be rewarded or punished fairly. And I say that's a sobering reality because every single human is sinful by birth, by, by nature, and by choice. Okay? And so every single human, if we get justice, what we deserve, we deserve the wrath of God, and so I don't know about you, I don't want God's justice, I want God's mercy. I don't want God to give me what I deserve because of the things that I thought and said and done. No, I want mercy, and in His grace, that's what God has provided in this child who was born, the son who was given. He says, I will give you mercy, he is the payment for your sin. When Jesus died on the cross, the justice I deserved, it fell upon him. And so when I trust in him, then, then God is not only just because my sin was paid for. God's not unjust. He can't say, oh, Rod, he's a great guy. I'm not even going to think about his sin. Don't, don't bother. No, he's just. Sin has to be paid for, but he's also the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. And so this is the staggering truth about Christmas. Our gloom can be turned into gladness. Our darkness can be turned into light because of Jesus. This hope that goes beyond our circumstances, beyond the grave, it's available exclusively for those who repent, believe in Jesus, and enter the kingdom of God. And so I my point, my plea for you, I beg of you, repent, believe in Jesus, enter his kingdom, and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness with every ounce of energy that you have. There's no other remedy for sin, no other remedy for darkness and gloom and anguish. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, enter his kingdom, walk in his light. So I hope you've benefited from this, this, this message today. I hope a hundred times more that you will abide in this word, the word of God, this week. That you will ponder these things, that you will not, that they will hound you throughout this week and they will nourish your soul, and that you will respond accordingly. Toward that end, we've, we've provided a meditation and reading guide. We're going to provide one every week. If you get the e-blast, you probably got it early this morning. If you didn't get it, check your spam folder or whatever. If you aren't don't get the e-blast and would like it, go to the connection card and sign up for that, and you will get it tomorrow. It's also available in the Church Center app. But this guide will give you a scripture a day, Monday through Friday, that supplements and, and reinforces the passage in Isaiah taught the previous Sunday. And we'll provide a video meditation Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for that guide. But abide in Christ. Let his word abide in you, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Heavenly Father, we ask that we would be people that accept everything that you, you want to give us. And God, this, this morning, this week, we, we pray specifically that we would accept the hope that comes only through Jesus, the Messiah. God, may we, may we not settle for lesser hopes, uh, circumstantial hopes that we might have, but God, may we hope in Jesus himself, for he is sure, he is certain. I pray, God, that those who are walking in great darkness and are experiencing despair and anguish these days uh, might uh, experience your light and your hope. God, we know it's possible through Jesus. God, may we encourage each other by these things. May we receive everything that the indwelling Holy Spirit wants to give us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.